So our Sabbath school this morning, um, and he got the roving mic. How does that happen? Okay, then I'm going to take the stand because I can't I hang on to a mic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little high. It's Someone a, want to turn it down a bit? It's set for me. It, yeah. <laughs> my, my voice would probably be carried just fine without it. I'm trying to whisper right now. Well, there we go. No, because then I, I don't have to touch my hands to everything. So. <laughs> That's I'm spoiled. why I wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to do this. <laughs> we love each other, I promise. <laughs> family doesn't argue. We have discussions. He defends. <laughs> vigorous. Vigorous, yes. Full of life. <laughs> Full of love and life, yes. Okay, so mine needs to go up and his needs to go down. <laughs> I think mine's at a good level now. At least it sounds that way to me. I'm... Can you all hear us now? Okay. Well, before we get started, why don't we open with another word of prayer? Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have to learn from your scriptures, from history, from your dealings with uh, the church throughout time, and your patience with us. And Lord, I just ask that you will uh, teach us now, that you will be here in our midst as we open your word now. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So our... I'm going. To, we are going to assume that you all studied the lesson. We're not going to talk about everything. Um, but Daniel, could you get us a marker board? Marker board? I don't think he heard me. Maybe someone else. Maybe else know where the marker board is? Daniel, can you get it? Okay. I can't teach without one. I don't know about John. I can go either way, but it's always helpful to have a marker board. <laughs> So let's turn to uh, Revelation 13 and put your finger there and then turn to Revelation 7. I mean, Revelation. Daniel Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 13 and Daniel 7. Okay, so put a marker in both um, because we're going to be doing both today. We'll see how far we get. The reason I asked Uncle John to help me today is because history is my favorite subject, and it happens to be also his, except that he has a doctorate in it. <laughs> so uh, this is our, our uh, early Christian church history historian um, helping us teach today, and I'm really excited because um, I am fascinated with history, and I believe that if we do not learn from it, we will repeat it. And uh, it's very important to understand what has happened in history so we can see what's going on today and understand what's happening today. So in Daniel chapter 7, you all have a marker in Revelation 13. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, you have a vision of four beasts. And we're going to start at verse 4. Would someone like to read verses 4? Yeah, verse 4. Someone read Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. Maybe start at verse 3 and 4. Thank you, sorry. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first, like a lion, had eagle wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and they were lifted up from the earth, and they had stand upon the feet of a man, and a man's heart was given to them. All right, and then someone else read verse 5, the next verse. 
and behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its feet. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. Okay. And then someone read the next verse. I'm not going to say what it is. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon its back four wings of a bird. These had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. All right. And someone read the next verse. Okay. So we have here, this is a review for most of us, right? Uh, We have here four beasts. What were they? Lion, bear, bear, leopard, and terrible beast. And what did these beasts represent? Kingdoms, right? So what kingdoms did these represent? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay? And then, of course, uh, Rome had two parts, right? It had the, the terrible beast with how many? Ten horns. And then it had a, a little horn cut that came out, right? And so you have Rome turning from a political power to a religious power, right? Okay, so now let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. And we have another beast. And he's also coming up out of the sea, right? So let's read about it, uh, verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 13. Someone else read, who hasn't read yet? All right, so what similarities do we see here? Okay, there's ten horns. What else? The same animals, right? Well, he, it said he had what? He, he was like a leopard, right? He had the feet of the bear and the mouth of the lion. Right. And what other, did you see another thing on his head was what? And what else? You say it louder. The name of blasphemy. blasphemy. Okay, blasphemy. Now, in Daniel 7, it didn't say blasphemy, but what did it say? Spoke great things. Pompous words or great things or great words, okay? Well, same idea, all right? Uh, so we have a lot of similarities with our characteristics here. Um, now, this one has seven heads. Seven horns, right? This one has seven heads and well, ten horns, right? Both of them had no, ten horns. they both horns. had ten horns. Yeah. Well, yes. It's 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 unclear to me. I I tried to to uh, construct this beast out of clay when I was in high school. How do you put ten horns on seven heads and distribute them evenly? It's really, it's really tough. And, and how do you, you know, this leopard, bear, lion, beast thingy. It's, it's kind of a tough thing. I gave up and made a lion instead. I, I went over here and made an easy beast. But 
It's a tough one to describe in all its details. One of the things that that is happening here, in between here, you also have Daniel 8 real quick. In Daniel 8, you've got two beasts, right? Uh, Do you remember what the beasts in Daniel 8 are? A ram and a goat. Okay, so a ram and goat, and what we often see is that Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8 are paralleling the same kingdoms. And then in Daniel 8, the ram and the goat are focusing on, these are sacrificial animals, and we're focusing on the religious side of things. So in Daniel 8, you're talking about the religious side of things. In Daniel 7, we're talking about the political side of things. So what are we talking about here? Both. And I think that's the point. You have a religious beast in Revelation 13 that has the characteristics of the imperial beasts in Daniel 7. And it also takes on uh, specifically the little horn that is here and here is also the focal point of Daniel 8. Daniel 8, 14 and, and following verses are focusing on the little horn. And what we're trying to do here in this Revelation 13, we want to understand what is this thing that makes war on the saints of God? What is this thing? Well, the dragon is behind it. The dragon gave him his power. The and his dragon seat, gives him power, right? So, it's the beast. It's the the terrible beast morphs into this with the little horn. So here we have, if you've got. Uh, going down through the, the Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, grief mor- uh, Rome morphs from the terrible beast into the, the ten-horned beast and into the little horned beast. So it's all Rome. And so when you end up with, with this side of it, the focal point here and here is going to be the little horn all the way through the, in uh, Daniel eight fourteen up at verse 14 here. Um, if I have room. <laughs> and, and the little horn thing then is the thing that caused so much trouble to Daniel when he was trying to understand what's going on. And the answer that he was given in, in chapter 8 is the answer to chapter 7. And then chapter 9 becomes the answer to Daniel, uh, chapter 8. We don't have time to spend too much time on that now because we're actually trying to get to the heart of Revelation 13. One of the things that is spread between Daniel and Revelation in chapters 12, 13, and in Daniel 7 and 8, you've got seven times where you have the same number referred to in different denominations. The 1260 days, the 42 months, and the three and a half times. Seven times in the Bible, we have this number given to us. And it, and it all comes down to the 1260 days. I can't spell when I get to the top here. That was a Y and S, believe it or not. (laughs) I ran out of room. But I want to take a look at some of the characteristics that we have described in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Revelation 13. One of them is, clearly, it's going to have political authority and it's going to have religious authority. And I want to I want to tell you a little story about where in Rome political authority and religious authority become all tangled up, and this is in the person of Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar, one of the the Julian, the the very rich old money Julian family, patristic family for generations, going clear back to the Etruscan kings, uh, got on hard times. 
So they were hard up. They, they had lots of land, but they didn't have a lot of capital. They had had a, some squandering relatives that were uh, using up all the money. So when Julius was a young man, he didn't have any money. But somebody bestowed upon him the authority of being the priest, the high priest of Jupiter, the Pontifex Maximus, the one who is the, the, the flamen of Jupiter, the priest of Jupiter. And what he did then as a teenager, he was doing this, he was the one who constructed the central Roman religious festivities. And then later, when he became the imperial power, he kept the flamen or the Pontifex Maximus of Jupiter. So he became then the, the, the one who first holds both the political power and the religious power in one hand, as it were. And then when you, when you go to his, the person who followed him, his adopted son, had been his nephew, becomes Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar is a long-time ruler, rulers for 42 years as emperor. And there a third item happens that puts it together, that he starts off as Pontifex Maximus, he becomes the emperor, and now he's both. And then toward the middle of his life, the Senate, the Roman Senate, decided that they wanted to give him a great honor. So they said, they voted that he was a god. Okay, so, you know, these kinds of things can be voted and they become true, right? You know, anything that is voted by a council becomes true. So, um, so they voted him a god. Now he said, well, wait a second, you can't vote me a god unless you first vote Julius Caesar a god. And so they voted Julius Caesar a god posthumously. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of it's tough to be a god after you die. Um, but anyway, uh, they... They voted that, and then he's also said, you know, I, I want my wife to be a god too. So they voted all three of them gods, and then, and then that became kind of the norm for Roman emperors. Every Roman emperor that followed after Augustus wanted to be the high priest of Jupiter and the emperor and voted a god by the Senate. So these, this, this divine imperial power combination that comes under the title of Pontifex Maximus, becomes the norm, and every single one of the emperors who came in got that, including, by the way, Constantine. Uh, Constantine, when he chose to become a Christian, did not stop being the high priest of Jupiter. So he's a, he's a Christian emperor who is also the high priest of Jupiter and a god. So this is a real twist of things. Um, and, and then sometime during the 4th century, the, they, they dropped off the high priest of Jupiter and the God thing by the time you get to Theodosius I at the end of the 4th century when he declares Christianity to be the official religion of Rome. But in that, that century in between, you have Christian emperors that are also voted to be gods by the Senate and they are the high priests of Jupiter. When Rome was defeated by Christianity in the end, and Justinian puts the, 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 the Roman power into the hands of the Bishop of Rome in his laws in, that he were printed uh, through 533 through 536. 
the, the, the title, Pontifex Maximus, then goes with the Bishop of Rome. And so the idea of being an emperor and being the leader, the spiritual leader, and divine, all three of those that all of the Roman emperors has had were then transferred to the Bishop of Rome by the, the rules of Justinian. Now, human laws do not make things so, but they were claimed. And when we come to this power, we are looking at something that is claiming to be Roman imperial power and divine power and the priestly power, all in one hand. That becomes a mouth speaking great things. Now, interestingly enough, um, well, let me go back. There's, there's another piece of this that is very important to that, that you could never have a papacy declared from a bishop of Rome unless you had certain things that had gone before. Uh, one of the things that has gone before is you need to have, before you can have that kind of power in the hands of a person, you need to have the people all ascribing that kind of power to people. And the way this happens is in uh, uh, clear back in Tertullian's day, back in the early part of the third century, already by then, the people are relating, the Christians are relating to God as if he were a pagan God. Uh, for instance, the idea that if somebody is baptized by human hands, God must give them salvation. It is, it is a, 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 we did the action, you must come through with your part. Mandate. A mandate is a manipulation of God. Human actions force the hand of God. That conceptualization is not what God had in mind when he created this Christian church. But it's what becomes the norm within Christianity by the beginning of the third century. This quid pro quo. We do the actions God must provide his part. So we eat the Eucharist. God must provide salvation. By eating the Eucharist, I have salvation. I eat this bread and I, I drink this wine and now I have salvation. God must do it. That's, you know, what, what started out as a free gift becomes a transaction. What was intended to be God providing something for us ended up being something we did to force God's hand. And, and that, that conceptualization, that, that pagan relationship with God within the Christianity is what set the stage for the possibility of this. Another thing, of course, is the... the, the uh, extreme sacerdotalization, that making everything holier than it actually is. Humans are not holy. But to take this person and now make him a priest and now declare him to be holy and then push him higher and higher. And pretty soon, after a few uh, generations, the priest is making God by his words in the Eucharist. That conceptualization is not what we find in Scripture, but it's what we find in history. And it sets the stage for, uh, well, let me go to Cyprian for a minute. Cyprian in the middle of the third century, is, uh, he, he's got a situation where he is the bishop, uh, the metropolitan bishop of all the area of North Africa. Now, and, and Carthage, he is the big bishop and all the other bishops are around him. So when he, when he calls a council, he chairs it. 
He's the one in charge. Well, there is a persecution in which he ran away. The Decian persecution that happened in 249 approximately. He runs out of town to survive so that he could continue being the leader of his church. Well, he, he loses a lot of face for having run away. And when he comes back, there's a lot of people attacking him. So he needs to have some way to get his authority back. He lost his authority when he left town. So he comes back. He calls a council of all the bishops because they're all going to treat him as their boss. And that will help his parishioners then to recognize, oh yeah, he's still, he's still in charge. So they, they, a whole lot of people had fallen during the persecution of Decius. Uh, many of them had, uh, had given up their, their, uh, their, their, their attitude toward Jesus. They had said, I will offer the incense to the divine majesty of the emperor to save my business and my life and my family. And what do you do afterwards? These people need some sort of uh, obvious repentance. And so they're, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. And, and Cyprian calls this council they decide that anybody who fell during the persecution would need to do uh, penance the rest of their life to demonstrate how stricken they were uh, from, their, from their bad deeds. And secondly, uh, to keep, you know, while, while, they were, while he was gone, there were people that were in prison for their faith. And if they went to prison for their faith, it meant they lost everything. They would have no homes anymore. They would have no money anymore, no clothing even. Everything is taken by the state because that was a treasonous act to not offer the incense to the emperor as an act of treason against the state. And so they lost everything. But they gain everything in prison because they are confessors of Jesus Christ. And of course, they're thinking in the back of their minds, if you confess me in in, uh, on earth, I will confess you in heaven. So this is a very important aspect. Everybody's looking at these confessors and saying, whoa, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. These guys are righteous. They're the saints. We can go to them and they can ask God things that we need. So the guys who fell, some of them, the rich guys who stabbed money, they would go to the confessors in prison and say, Listen, I know you're in prison. You don't have anything, but hey, I can take care of your family. I can make sure they have food, clothing, roof over their heads, but I want you to do something for me. Quid pro quo. This deal with God. I want you to pray God to forgive me because I know he listens to you. So you be my mediator. Well, when, when Cyprian got back, a lot of the people who had actually fallen were sitting in the front pew of the church in their finery and saying, no, no, I'm, I'm fine because so-and-so prayed for me. He was in prison as a confessor. So I'm, I'm fine. Well, where's church discipline and organization, et cetera, et cetera? There's this, it was a mess when he got back. So one of the things the council decided was that these guys who had fallen must spend the rest of their lives not dressing up fancy, not bathing, not, not cutting their hair, etc., looking the part of a penitent. Sackcloth and ashes, they called it in the Old Testament. And the equivalent was, don't bathe, don't, don't eat fancy food, uh, dress in rags, don't comb your hair, you know, don't look like you know you're a sinner. And then, 
Another thing that was said was we need to get control of who is declaring people forgiven or not. So he says, okay, we need to define the church as the bishops. Where the bishop is, there the church is. Not where the confessors are, not where the saints are, not where the presbyters are, where the bishops are. There the church is. So this is putting the authority right solidly onto the bishops. And then he, he made the statement earlier in a treatise, but it became voted at that council as an official statement. You may not have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. A way of saying there is no salvation outside the church. No salvation outside the church. And who is the church? The bishop. And therefore, since the church equals the bishop and there's no salvation outside the church, only the bishop can forgive sins. Only the bishop can declare the forgiveness of sins. Now, officially, they're still saying, no, Jesus does the forgiveness. But the bishop decides who's receiving that forgiveness and who is not receiving that forgiveness. The the bishop decides who gets grace and who gets withheld grace. So the power of excommunication or of giving salvation, according to that doctrine, goes into the hands of the bishops to give salvation or to withdraw salvation. What is bound on earth is bound in heaven, so they argued. Misarguing, by the way. That's not what that was about. But that's what they used it as. So you end up with, quote-unquote, scriptural backing to a human idea that humans are in charge of salvation and that the humans decide who gets the Eucharist or not. The humans decide who gets rebaptism or not and therefore are actually withholding salvation. Now that only works if the people already think and visualize that their salvation is coming through the actions. If they're not already seeing that the salvation is coming through the actions rather than direct from Jesus Christ, as our mediator, but are mediated by the church, then you have a mess. You've got a mess because they're thinking, okay, I must have the church on my side or God will not save me. And then with that authority, you can see how it gets twisted into manipulating human authority over God's authority and becomes a mouth speaking great things. Only the bishop can forgive sins. And there's no salvation outside the bishop who is the church. When this all happened in the third century, by the way, there was a caveat that Cyprian put on this, much to his credit. You know what a caveat is? The the small print at the bottom of the page on a contract. That the the, the little pieces of the in the contract. He says, if a bishop were to make a mistake and forgive somebody who should not have been forgiven, God will intervene because God is the judge. He says, if the bishop were to make a mistake and withhold salvation from somebody who should have received salvation, God will intervene because God is the judge. Ironically, almost nobody quotes the caveat later. They're all quoting the part, no salvation outside the church. Only the bishop can forgive sins. That's the part that gets quoted throughout the Middle Ages. 
The caveat gets nearly forgotten, although to his credit, Peter Lombard includes it in book four of the sentences, which becomes the official uh, thing that is studied to get your your doctorate in uh, in theology in the Middle Ages is the is the sentences of Lombard. And there it is. When you look at there uh, under his understanding of repentance and penance, he actually has the caveat attached to Cyprian's thing. But nobody quotes Peter Lombard on that either later on. The, the popes all like to say, no, I've got that authority. It's been given to me by God and I can give it or not give salvation. That is the power. And of course, one of the famous things that is, is given later on is the story of Gregory Seventh. He's a pope in the 12th century and Henry Fourth has just come to the throne in Germany, uh, proto-Germany, the, uh, what we would call later the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, he comes to the imperial throne. His father had been a strong emperor, but toward the end, he had, he had uh, had a civil war and it was weak. And so when Henry comes, Henry IV comes to the throne as a teenager, he does not have all his ducks in order. He does not have full control of his armies. He does not have all his dukes agreeing with him. So his dukes are threatening to have a civil war against him. And so he's weak. And that's when Gregory Seventh excommunicates him. And now it is weak moment. He says, oh man, oh man, what am I going to do? I don't have my army on my side and now the people are going to turn against me because they think the Pope has the authority of salvation and he's just taken it away from me. And not only that, he said, anybody who follows him will be excommunicated as well. So now he's afraid that this Pope is going to, Gregory Seventh is going to not enable his people to feel secure in their church-given salvation. So they're going to rise up against him and overthrow him. So he goes down to the Pope in his castle in northern Italy and spends three days in penance in the snow barefoot trying to get back into the good graces of the Pope. And say, wow, what power! A, spoke, a Pope speaking great things, a, a little horn who has grown great problem is, yes, he's given back his salvation by the Pope, if indeed that was his to give. But uh, he's given back his salvation. And so he goes back and he gets all his dukes and his earls on side. And once he has all his ducks in order, dukes in order, literally, that's where that saying comes from, by the way, get your dukes in order. So you don't have any civil war behind you. We, we've We've Americanized it and to get your ducks in order. Make sure you have the votes before you take something to a council. But it's originally get your dukes in order. But anyway, the, the, he got all his dukes in order and then he has more power, secular power, physical violence power than the Pope does. So he goes back to Rome at that point and he deposes Gregory Seventh, throws him in jail and says, okay, you claim to be the Pope and I'm declaring that you were a false Pope and I'm going to elect a real Pope and that real Pope will back me. So then he like Clement I and Gregory is in jail for the rest of his life. What authority? But the authority isn't with the person. The authority is with the system. He was not free. Henry the fourth was not free to go down there and just kill a pope. 
without the people rising against him. He went instead and replaced the Pope with a new Pope who was in his pocket. So the power of the papacy as, as individuals goes up and down throughout this time. But the system, this, the power is in the system. The power is in the belief that this man, whether it be this man or the next one in that office, the man with this office has the authority for my salvation or to withhold my salvation. That is the power of the papacy, not necessarily an individual pope, but of the papacy. And that is what is represented as the mouth speaking great things against the Most High. In Daniel 8, 14, the taking away of the daily sacrifice. The daily sacrifice is, of course, that sacrifice that is constantly burning Every morning it is offered and it burns till evening. Every evening it is offered and it burns till morning. And then the next morning it's offered and it burns till evening. That daily sacrifice of two lambs a day. Continual. The continual sacrifice represents. Well, let's, let's, let's take a look at, at Leviticus. Have you, have you read Leviticus 4 through 10 recently? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, the, there's a whole list of of. Offerings you can offer if you have sinned. So if you do this sin, then there's this offering. If you do this sin and you're this kind of person, you have this offering. If you're, if you're a rich man, you bring a bull. If you're a poor man, you bring a lamb. If you're a really poor person, you can bring a couple of doves. If you're absolutely flat out dirt poor, you can bring a handful of grain. But always there's something that can be brought for a sin that they know about. But there's a whole other class of sins, those sins we don't know about. How do we get forgiveness for the sins we don't know about? You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, he is faithful and just and will forgive, right? But what if we don't know about it? What if, and, and to be honest with you, I think most of our sins are sins that we don't know about. I mean, let's be honest. When, 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 we are, when we are treating people badly and we don't even know we've treated them badly, we walk into a social situation and make a terrible thing that hurts somebody terribly and walk out the other door and wasn't, weren't even aware that we hurt them. Those kinds of sins are the kinds of sins that we don't know about. We, we're not even aware of them unless the Holy Spirit brings a conviction to us on each individual one. And quite frankly, I've got enough bigger sins that the Holy Spirit is convicting me on that I, I have a ways to go before I get down to the little tiny ones that I'm not aware of. So, so, so I have a question for yes. you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about a couple of the other beasts in Revelation 13. We only have 10 minutes left in Sabbath school. Okay, so let me make this point and go on. The continual was there for the unknown sins. There is forgiveness for the unknown sin if you confess it. And you just say, Lord, I'm sure I hurt people today. I'm sure I misrepresented you in many ways. Please forgive me for those things that I'm not even aware of. Mm-hmm. That continual is there. Not for the specific sin you confess, but for those things you don't know about. The unknown sin. The unknown sin is forgiven through the continual and it's taken away by the beast and put into the hands of a person 
And then you have to come to the priest and confess your sins to the priest. And then the priest can forgive the sins that you've confessed. But what about the unknown sin? Say 15 Hail Marys to cover the unknown sin. But, 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 but this is putting it all in the hands of people and out of the hands of God. This is a pagan relationship with God. I don't know about you, but that uh, I've been enjoying these stories, haven't you? <laughs> it puts a new perspective on some of these things that we've heard all our lives and, you know, uh, studied. I mean, I've uh, read about these beasts in Revelation 13 all my life, but some of these stories from history, like you said, it's, it's a system of worship, really. It is. And uh, when we look at this whole chapter of Revelation 13, I'm seeing a pattern here of worship because... We have our next beast, which we're not going to read about it. Um, but what is the, the next beast that comes out of the earth? It's a lamb-like, lamb-like beast, beast, right? Totally opposite from this great and terrible beast that came out of the ocean uh, with lots of water. We have a... Cuddly <laughs> beast. Well, it's a lamb, right? <laughs> Except later a, on it speaks like a dragon, right? Yeah. But once again, this beast, what does he do? He causes people to worship. Right? He sets up an image to the beast and causes worship. So we have what you were telling us all through history. This beast definitely has a system of worship in place. And now we have another beast that is setting up an image to the same system of worship, right? An image to to the pagan view of God. This pagan relationship with God where we do our part and you must do your part now. We can manipulate you into giving us salvation. So how does this all tie in with, like, we got like five minutes left. So how do we tie all this in with the mark of the beast to make it practical for us today? Well, we're going to have to jump through a few hoops because when you go to details for 20 minutes, then you have to skip other details. <laughs> but uh, are, are, we, are we okay in recognizing that one of the things that this beast does is to set up a false day of worship? Okay, so and, that and it was just a few weeks ago that we studied what the seal of God was. Yeah, I think most of you remember that Sabbath school lesson, right? The seal of God, um, and found in God's law, right? Yes, it is found in God's law and obeying God and recognizing He is the sovereign. He He is the, him, the appropriate right? lawgiver, and so we worship the appropriate Creator and lawgiver, as opposed to the 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 day of false worship that is set up by. It, within the false system. You know, it's interesting. When, when Luther and Eck were having their arguments uh, over whether, to, whether the scripture was what was to be followed or whether the Catholic Church was what was to be followed, uh, Eck said, well, Luther, where in your scripture do you find the change from the seventh-day Sabbath to the first day as the, as the worship day? And, and Luther's sputtering along there, trying to, trying to discover a, a scripture by which to back that up. And X says, there isn't one. The authority of the Catholic Church changed that. And you following it proves that you're actually following the, the authority of the Catholic Church. So, and that, I think, will happen again in the end of time. Well, it says that this... this uh Lamb-like beast, we, I don't think we've actually said we identified it, but what does this lamb-like beast uh, represent, the one that comes out of the earth? 
the United States, right? Coming out of the Which, earth rather than out of the sea. Because coming of out course of the we skipped the whole 1260 area. days, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't get to talk about 538 and 1798. But I that's, think most people know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, though. Uh, when you teach that, please teach it from 1798 back to 538. It makes sense that way. That's the way we discovered it. The, it's hard to find a little horn in history. It's easy to find the horn speaking great things. So start with the horn speaking great things where every, all historians can see it. 1798 was a great, massive event. And then you work backwards to 538, and then you find the little events that all contributed to how this started. So, so that's the way we discovered it, so we should present it that way as well in public. All right, so we're back to our, the Mark of the Beast. Mark of the Beast. The, the so we have we have uh, basically a contest, right? We have a two systems of worship. We have God's system of worship and man's fault system of worship, right? And you have two marks. We have the seal of God and yes. we have the mark of the beast. So uh, is this mark of the beast like a tattoo on my forehead or uh, like, you know? <laughs> Don't see one. <laughs> or um. or is, it, is it my social security number or... Is it is it that real ID that's coming out really soon and the driver's license? I I think instead I think instead <laughs> of those Kentucky. physical things, it is allegiance. When when we talk about the 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 mark in the hand and the forehead, I think we're talking about actions and thoughts. And now I can't guarantee you that in the short time we have here, but uh, if you would allow me to assert that, that we're talking about how we act and how we think. So we have the, the, uh, the conceptualization of this false system of worship that treats God as if he were a pagan God that can be manipulated. That if we do the right things, that God must provide salvation. That is a pagan relationship with God. And the the understanding that you have when you apply it to worship is I'm going to worship God the way we have manipulated God and God must do his part versus I'm going to let God be God and I will do a little obeying here rather than dictating to God. And so the attitude toward God is the difference, the major difference. So one more question for yes. you. Uh, I've also heard we, we pretty much established what the mark of the beast is. It's our thoughts and actions, and it's our worship, right? Our yes. allegiance. Who's our allegiance to? So what about the 666 number? You know, someone told me last week that if you add up uh, the letters in New York, it comes out to 666. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, like. There's, you, you can manipulate, depending on what numerical system you're going to use, you can manipulate it. Usually, uh, uh, what, uh, what uh, uh, has been asserted is that this is, uh, the Pontifex Maximus terminology, which is on the, the mitre of all the popes, etc., and goes clear back to Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, etc., uh, being Pontifex Maximus. And so the assertion of being God on earth is what 666 is all about. Okay. So basically, what you're, what you're telling me is that the 666 is not the mark of the beast. It's just an identifier of the system. Yes, yes. So, so you wouldn't necessarily be getting a 666 on your forehead. Instead, you would be cooperating with the system that has the Pontifex Maximus uh, understanding of God uh, and, and a human on earth as the divinity. You know, during the 12th century, Bernard of Clairvaux 
trying to pick a fight with several of his theological uh, enemies, started asserting that the Pope was not only above all humans, but was actually in the semi-divine realm and into the divine realm. In, his, in the hierarchy of being of Aristotle, which I don't buy into, but he had it, you have God on top and then you have the semi, uh, semi-divine beings, what we would call the, the daimons. And then down below, you've got the humans divided up into the, uh, the free male humans uh, and then the, the servitude types of children, slaves, and women. And then, you know, I don't buy into this. But anyway, he had this all down, uh, down to rocks and minerals at the bottom. Using that, Bernard of Clairvaux asserts that the Pope is not only above all humans, but is above all angels and above everything into the realm of God himself. Now, Popes like to hear these kinds of things and they, and they like to do it, but, but, but be careful if you, if, you, if you try to attack a person in the system, please don't. Attack the system instead. The idea that we are going to follow a human as if he were God rather than following God as if he were God. That's what it comes down to. So receiving the mark of the beast, I think in the end, is going to be worshiping God as if he were a pagan God through a human system that has taken the, 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 the prerogatives of forgiveness of God and placing it upon themselves. So it really boils down to who we're worshiping. Are we worshiping yes. a vending machine God? Yes. Or are we worshiping our creator who created us, who loves us, and wants to have a relationship with us every single day? And is not willing that any of you should be lost. Amen. This God, it makes a difference which system you approach this God through. Because this God is not out to withhold for power. He's out to save. Amen.